this episode of Des Ivan Torah, we have the Zuchut speaking to Rav Daniel Korobkin, senior rabbi of Beth Abraham Yosef of Toronto Congregation. He received his rabbinic ordination from Rav Yaakov Ruderman, Zichron Racha of Neus or Al Rabbinic College. He has served pulpits in San Diego, Los Angeles, and at Allentown, Pennsylvania. Rav Korobkin holds a Master of Science degree from Johns Hopkins University, as well as a Master of Arts degree in Medieval Jewish and Islamic Thought from UCLA. He is the translator and annotator of the Feldheim edition of Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's Kuzari, and a regular contributor to webyeshiva.org, an online Torah study network based in Israel, where he currently teaches the Rambam's Morei Nevuchim. Rav Korobkin is a past president of the Rabbinical Council of America. Thank you so much, Rav Daniel Korobkin, for joining us today. It's a real zechut to have you with us. Thank you so much, Darcy. I appreciate the opportunity to share words of Torah with you and your listeners. And I think what you're doing is something really, really great. And kola kavod, keep up the great work. Okay, so I, I guess a few words of introduction are in order. If we're talking about uh, three physical books that I have to take on a desert island with me, and it was a question of choosing between three Torah books um, and perhaps uh, choosing what would be in my list of priorities, I probably, if there was a book called How to Survive on a Desert Island, I probably would have to choose that and leave over one of the Torah books because Jews are nothing but practical. And then if there was a second book called How to Build a Raft to Survive Shark-Infested Waters to Get Back to Civilization, I probably would choose that book as my second, and that would only leave one Torah book. So I'm I'm already very, very limited as it is. But in all seriousness, I guess I would have to say, and especially listening to some of your previous podcasts, that I understand that what you're looking for are three sort of um, overarching ideas that help sustain me as a Jew who tries to stay connected to the Ribono Shalom, to the master of the universe, keeps me grounded, gives me proper perspective on the meaning of and purpose of existence. Um, and I, I guess I would I would only add to that, that after I give you these three ideas that really resonate with me and sustain me, the true sustenance of, of a Jewish soul really comes from much more than just three ideas that exist in the in the abstract. They, my, my, my whole nourishment of my soul, I believe, comes from studying the texts. And so I don't really know how I would survive on a desert island with just three divrei Torah or three different ideas without having a shas, without having a rambam, without having a kuzari and a moren um, and all of the other, th- and, and sifrei chasidut and sifrei machshava, all the things that really sustain me on a daily basis. But I'm going to put all of that aside, and I'm going to try and answer your your question for the three sort of sustaining ideas. So there's a there's a great um, line from a movie called The Matrix, which I think many many of us have seen, where Morpheus says to Neo, he says, "This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill." You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. And so many of us would like to think that, as Neo does, he would take the red pill and seek the truth. But in matters of chasidut, it's not that simple. 
Because when God created us, he created us with a very specific purpose, and that is really to have a limited perspective on reality. If we really, truly understood existence from a divine vantage point as it truly is, we would lose our humanity and the very purpose for which we were created. And so, in a sense, mankind is supposed to constantly aspire to a higher level of intellect and understanding, but at the same time, embracing one's humanity and real realizing that if I reach too high, then I will at some point have lost that humanity that I so desperately desire to, to realize. And so it's in that light that there's a sefer called Sod Sharim from the Radziner, from Gershon, Gershon Hanach Leiner, that uh, to me is very, very resonant. He divides the world of ideas into two parts. There are those things that are kvar birshuto uvitfisato, things that are already within man's grasp intellectually, and those things which are lema'ala mehavanat tfisato, those things which are above man's current ability to grasp. And I guess I guess his his recurring theme that he goes through in so many of his divrei Torah is that life is all about a struggle to constantly climb that ladder of intellectual apprehension so that I'm able to gain a greater and greater understanding of Hashem's reality for what it is. And that's certainly the Rambam's whole objective in the Moren of Uchim and so many of his other writings, which is why um, both Ishbitz and Radziner Hasidus are so linked to the writings of the Rambam. But there's one particular idea that he says in regard to Sukkot, which I just wanted to share briefly with you. Uh, he notes that the Torah says on regarding the first day of Sukkot, lachem bayom harishon, take for yourselves on the first day. Now we know what our sages tell us, that it's really the first day of sort of the counter of us being accountable for our behavior after Yom Kippur. We achieve atonement on Yom Kippur, and Sukkot is the first day when, that, when the meter starts running again. But Rav Leiner turns that upside down, and he says, Bayom HaRishon is in contrast to Vayihi Erev Vayihi Voker Yom Echad. And it was evening and it was day, day one. What's the difference between Rishon and Echad? Echad, one, means that everything is unitary. There is no second, third, and fourth. There is only one. And so the reason why the first day of creation is called Yom Echad and not Yom Rishon is because there was only one. There was only unity and unitariness on the first day of creation. After going through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we reach such a level of inspiration and connection and the skies open for us, so to speak, on a spiritual level and perhaps even on an intellectual level, that we proclaim by the end of Yom Kippur, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, that there is only one unity, and that is God. But how does the human being survive and subsist on that lofty level over the course of the year? It's not possible, nor is it even desirable for a human being to bask in that divine presence on such an intimate level with such that there is no other reality other than God. Then what happens to my individuated self? What happens to your individuated self? And so forth and so on. And so Rev Leiner understands that what happens on Sukkot is that we reduce ourselves to go from Echad to Rishon. 
we go from the epiphanous moment at the end of Yom Kippur that there is only echad, there is only absolute unity, to going back to a point where we see that we are just part of a sequence of a multiplicity of existence. And he, he points to the fact that that's why our sages define the schach of a sukkah, the, the, the material that we use to cover our sukkot, is usually made out of chaff. As the Gemara in Masechet Sukkah says, bipisolet goren vayekev hakatuv medaber, that we're supposed to be using the waste product, the straw and the stubble of our harvests. Why specifically are we supposed to use something that is a waste product that we don't really need and use that as the covering of our sukkah? So Rav Leiner says is because the holiday of Sukkot represents our lack of understanding and appreciation for the full gamut of God's creation. Because in reality, there is nothing wasteful on our planet. Those things which we perceive to be things that go to waste, the chaff of the, of the, uh, of the, of the grain, and all of the discards that we don't need uh, that exist in our world, Everything serves a purpose from a divine vantage point, from a divine perspective. The fact that we use the schach is a reminder to us that we are returning back to our prosaic existence of seeing the world as God wants us to see it, at least in this present time, that we see things that readily and apparently serve a purpose and things that are above our perception, that we don't really understand what, what they're all about. And that's what the schach represents. It represents what to, seems to us to be a waste product, but really to Hashem is so much more. And that's really what we're striving for on Sukkot. And for me, it really encapsulates a lot of what Ishbitz Radzin uh, Hasidut is all about, which is the idea that even when we see things that are defective and flawed in our world, we have to appreciate that from God's vantage point, there is no defect in flaw, that everything that exists as it is now is in its perfected state, because otherwise it would not exist as it is. To me, that's a great consolation, especially if I'm on a desert island, and I'm trying to make sense of why I'm there in my state of solitude, being apart from all of my loved ones and having to live with a loincloth and hunt for fish. Hopefully, that kind of console, the consolation of that idea, that everything that exists in its current state, even though it seems to be flawed and defective and even evil, is really the way Hashem wants it. Wow, that's a great choice. Um, a really unique piece we've never um, had from that sefer before, and I think a really, really powerful choice um, and really meaningful. Thank you for sharing. Okay, thanks. Ready for number two? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Number two is from the Sefer Shemi Shmuel, from Rav Shmuel uh, of Sachachov, Rav Shmuel Borstein of Sachachov. And you can find this in his commentary to Parshat Kitisa and Parshat Para in the year Tafshin Ayin Aleph. And he has an amazing explanation of this mitzvah of Para Duma. Now, we all know that the mitzvah of the red heifer, taking the ashes of an incinerated red cow and sprinkling sprinkling it on a person who is ritually impure, who is Tameh, is one of those mitzvot which is which King Solomon himself said, Amarti mimeni. I, I thought that I would be wise and know the reason for every mitzvah. But this particular mitzvah is so 
um, counterintuitive and so cryptic. I don't even King Solomon couldn't make full sense of it. But um, the Shemi Shmuel has a beautiful metaphorical explanation of what this mitzvah is all about. The first thing that he points out is that he says that the whole phenomenon of para aduma is really just taking the sacrificial order and turning it completely upside down. What do, what do we do when we bring an animal to the temple and sacrifice it? We take it as a living creature and we take all of its vitality, all of its organs that represent a living, breathing creature, and we offer that life force up to God as a sacrifice. Its reduction to ashes result is, is the consequence of that sacrificial service, but the ashes are representative of the fact that the animal has already been used up, so to speak, and the ashes therefore serve no further purpose, and they are therefore discarded. That's what we call deshen, a discarded ash byproduct of something that was very productive and was previously very vital and alive. The para duma is just the opposite. It is the taking of something that is vital and alive, and instead of using its vitality, we slaughter the animal and reduce it to ash in order to get what would normally be considered a waste product and to use it for something productive, which is to purify people who were previously tame. And he says, he says, the reason for this is because the purpose of every korban is is because the whole idea of taking an animal is, to, is it, it, that is representative of our physical side, and we're supposed to channel our physical aspects towards the service of God. That's what a korban is. But the ash is just the opposite, he says, because when you think about it, ash represents atzvut and atzlut shehem miyasod he'afar. Ash represents the human condition of depression and sadness. Whereas really what God wants in the service of him is a happy individual, a joyous individual. And that's one of the things that he picks, he quotes from the Zohar. The Zohar asks a very interesting question, which I wouldn't have thought of intuitively, but the Zohar takes it as a given. The Zohar asks, how is it possible for a human being who has committed a sin to be able to effectively bring a sacrifice to the temple? After all, you can only serve God properly when you're in a state of joy. But this person who wishes to atone for a sin feels that sense of brokenness and tremendous, tremendous melancholy and depression over the fact that he's done something terribly wrong. So how can that person achieve anything by bringing a korban? The Zohar answers that that is the function of the Kohen. The Kohen must bring the sacrifice and the bringer cannot bring it himself. For that very reason, according to the Zohar, because the Kohen is in a state of perpetual joy, and we append the Kohen's joy to the sacrificial offering of the individual. And he says, with that idea in mind, if ash represents depression, and the vitality of an animal represents serving God with the vitality that is within myself, then here's the idea of the para aduma. 
What does a person do when he's become Tame, when he feels disenfranchised and distant from, from God, which is what Tum'ah represents? So one way of looking at it is that a person has to say to himself, the byproduct of being distant from God is depression, of that feeling of sadness. Take the ash, which represents sadness, and sprinkle it upon yourself. That is to say, indulge in your depression. You have to indulge in that moment of depression, because otherwise you will never allow yourself to alleviate yourself of that depression. When things are going wrong in life, if we don't take time to uh, to marinate in that understanding of where we are in life, to allow ourselves to indulge for a short period of time in the ash of life, in that depressive state, we will never realize a recovery from that depressive state. And that's the whole idea of what the para aduma is all about. He says, he says, the objective is not to achieve depression, but to rather go through depression so that I can get past it. And if I if I were to suggest what is one of the greatest um, um, social ills that um, social media has created for humanity today, it's the it's the problem that we have. When I'm driving in my car, it used to be before I had a smartphone, if I was thinking of some problem that I was going through, some challenge that I was going through in life, I would be able to pull over to the side of the road, perhaps shed a few tears, go through that cathartic moment of really being sad and, and allowing myself to be upset about it, and then have a, after that good cry, being able to move on. Today, when a person is faced with a particular challenge in life that is very disturbing, what do we do? Instead of taking a moment to reflect upon it, we pull out our smartphone and start watching sh short videos on TikTok of someone dancing or a cat shooting lasers from its eyes or some, some silliness such as that. And that's the problem is that we don't allow ourselves today to have the ash of the para aduma sprinkled upon ourselves. So if I was on a desert island, I think I'd have plenty of time to wallow in that ash but hopefully I'd be a happier person having had that time for self-reflection and allowing myself to indulge in the sad moment and in the ash of depression so that I could eventually relieve myself of it and live a better life afterwards. Absolutely. A great message. I think the Paratumat, there's kind of a bridge between, you know, doom and hope, between death and rejuvenation and the Paratuma kind of symbolizes that. It symbolizes the Torah's insistence on life and death, um, but not just death, like, like joy and depression. And I think that's an important message to take with us. Great, great, thank you. Okay, um, ready for number three? Let's go. Okay. Um, the, the last piece is something that I'm fond of quoting on Yom Kippur when I have the opportunity to reflect upon it. There's something contained in the Zohar that says, um, if we look back in the story of Noah, and he's on his ark, he's on his teva, the Torah says, Noach et chalon asher asa, that Noach opened up the window to the ark. And according to the Zohar, this day that he opened up the door to the ark was Yom Kippur. I don't know if the math works out in the calculations, but the Zohar says this represents at least 
Yom Kippur. Now, what does the Zohar mean by this? Um, There is this idea that Noah's opening of the Ark was looking out at a new world where I get to start again and live my life the way I'd like to live it. So what? let's look at what happens to Noah after he opens the window. He first sends out the raven. This is all recorded in Genesis chapter 8. And then only after the raven uh, doesn't do anything other than flying around the ark, he brings the raven, the raven comes back into the ark, and then Noah sends out the dove. Well, there's a common question, which is, if you were Noah on that teva and you wanted to represent your the beauty of the world in front of you and all of the potential that lay ahead, why wouldn't you start with a white bird which represents beauty and peace? Why start with a black bird and only revert to a white bird once you realize that the black bird wasn't effective? So I think that the idea here is, and this is based on a number of different sources, that on Yom Kippur, God reveals his plan to those who send out both the raven and the dove out into the world. The raven represents one kind of righteous soul that God sends into this world. It is the soul of someone who sees the darkness of this world, the opaqueness of this world, and seeks to protect himself from the vicissitudes and the pains of olam hazeh, of this existence. The raven is a black bird because you are what you see. The raven sees a world of blackness, of opaqueness, and therefore says, I don't want this world. I don't want to live in this world. I want to come back to the source, to the mothership, to the ribono shel olam, and hover close as close as possible as I can to God. Um, and therefore, this kind of tzaddik, who really is a tzaddik, a tzaddik who sees the pitfalls of this world, says, I don't want to be part of this world, of this physical realm. And he hovers, therefore, around the ark to be able to st- try his best to rise above the darkness of this world and be part of the spiritual realm. But there's another kind of tzaddik, the tzaddik who realizes that he was sent into this world in order to find the light despite the darkness to cultivate that light and to bring it to the fore. And that's represented by the dove. Its whiteness is a symbol of its ability to find the purity of this world, despite all of the pitfalls and the traps that we encounter on a regular basis. And I think that Noah's idea of first sending out the blackbird before sending out the whitebird is sort of an, an understanding that the only, you know, as King David said, Sur Turn away from evil and do good. That's the normative sequence in life. We try to avoid evil, and then only after having avoided evil can we do good. But as many of the commentaries say, life is not so neat and tidy as that. If you were to wait an entire lifetime uh, of eradicating the evil, you would never have any time to do good. And so it's important for us to be able to Uh, first look at and recognize and acknowledge that there are are many negative aspects to our physical existence, and that's represented by the blackbird. But at the same time, try our best to be the whitebird, which is to, despite those pitfalls, find the purity and the olive branch and the peace and the beauty that still exists in a world that's filled with darkness.
you'll find this idea uh, resonating in a lot of different texts on Hasidut, and also in the writings of Rav Kook, especially in his essay where he talks about the difference between Shevet Yehuda and uh, and Yosef and the Shvatim that come from Yosef. Yehuda represents the Jew who feels that there's potential danger in the outside world, and therefore, in order for him to for his self preservation has to build very, very high walls that protect him and his family from the deleterious effects of Olam Hazeh. And then you find the Yosef, who Mishkan Shiloh, which represents Yosef, the tabernacle that the Jews first came to when they first entered the land of Israel, had no walls. It was something that was visible to everyone. And the Sfas Emes talks about this as well. The difference between Yehuda and Yosef is Yehuda sees the dangers of this world and protects himself. He is the raven. And Yosef says, I know that there's darkness, but nonetheless, I have to venture out, even if it means exposing myself to dangerous elements. But I need to find the olive branches of life and be able to bring them back to God and say, I accomplished something. You sent me to a very, very far place, God, when you sent me out of the ark of the heavens. And now when I'm, after having lived my life of 120 years, I'm ready to come back and I have many, many olive branches that I found that I'm ready to present. I guess if I was on a desert island, I would want to console myself that hopefully, no matter where I am in this life, whether I'm alone, whether I'm with others, I can always find the olive branches of life and bring positivity back with me when my time is done in this world. Absolutely. Great message for all of us. Um, I love the connection between Yehuda and Yosef. I think like Yosef was successful because he was aware of his place in Hashem's world and he wanted to be aware of that and through, you know, life's how life works. And I think that's a great choice. Great message for all of us. Well, also remember that despite the very positive um sort of ideology that Yosef harbored the tribe that has survived the darkness of Galut is Yehuda. Because as, as, as much as we would like to realize the ideal of Yosef, most, most of Jewish history has been enshrouded in so much darkness that it is the raven who survives the, the darkness of Galut and not the Yosef. But as we are pulling out of and getting closer to the Messianic age, as we see events unfolding every single day, I always tell my congregation that it is time to become now like the like the dove and try to find opportunities to be, to find those olive branches of life and to be able to spread the light of Torah to the entire world. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing such inspiring Torah with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisrael. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.